Well, good morning, City Light. Happy New Year. Yeah, look at you guys. You guys made it. Uh, some of you may have either missed out on staying up till midnight or missed out on some sleep in order to make it here, and so it means a lot that you made it in the room. I'm impressed by you guys. Not as impressed as I am with like the 8 o'clock service because they I mean they, they really got up early, but I'm still glad you guys are here. Uh, like Chris said, my name is Clay. I work with the college ministry, and we are here in uh, January 1st, the first morning of the new year, right? Happy New Year. And uh, what the new year often brings is, is uh, a chance to look back at 2016 and look at how we would do things differently, maybe some changes we would make, and then to look forward at 2017 and think of the things that I need to change, things I need to put in place, disciplines I can put in my life in order to make this an even better year, in order to bring myself to a better place. And so uh, what can I do, what can I uh, put in place to be better, to make progress in my life? How can I be a better version of me? And we make New Year's resolutions, right? Promises to ourselves that we're going to make things different. We're going to have a better outcome this year. And so for me, I have the same New Year's resolutions pretty much every year. Pretty much have the same ones. It always starts with, I want to do the read the Bible through a year. Read the Bible all the way through. I figure it's easy, measurable, and if I miss, then at least I read some of my Bible, which is better than nothing. And so, uh, two, I always have the New Year's resolution to read more even on top of the Bible. Now, this is not because I like to read. Like, honestly, you make a New Year's resolution because it's something you're not going to do otherwise. And so, if I don't make a resolution to read, I'm just not going to do it. And so I make a New Year's resolution to read more even on top of the Bible. I make a New Year's resolution that this next year I'm going to be taller than the year before. That one hasn't panned out. But hey, here's the 2017, right? Who knows? Could be my year. All right. Uh, and, then, and then the other one I always have is to never watch Star Wars, like any of them. Not going to do it. I know I get booze, and that's why I'm not going to watch them. So you can't make me do it. I'm not going to do it. Don't care. All right, so we put these resolutions in place, and they all kind of have the same basic principle underneath them all. I'm going to set these disciplines, these habits in place in order to ensure some good and better outcomes in the year to come. Now, I'm not going to knock this because this is actually a really helpful thing to do to put disciplines in place. There are a lot of habits and disciplines that are going to lead to a lot of positive outcomes in your life. Like These are good things we do. Uh, I get really into these thing, things called life hacks. Have you guys heard of these? They're like little tips and tricks that you put in place, and then that leads to like big changes later in ways that you kind of usually wouldn't connect. And so that you have things like, if I set out my clothes the night before, pick out my breakfast, set up my coffee, then I make less decisions the following morning, which studies have shown leads to better decisions throughout the day. And so it seems kind of weird that all I have to do is get a discipline of setting up my coffee the night before, and then that leads to me having a more productive work life. But, but if I can make this simple change, it'll lead to big impact later. I'm hacking kind of life. Uh, and what is good about that also leads to something dangerous about that, is that I think in my mind that if I can just set the right things in place, the right disciplines, I can get a spiritual life hack. Right? I can figure out the way to make myself grow in Jesus, to look more like God. I can put structures and disciplines in place and make myself grow into a better version of me. 
The problem with that is that the Bible points to over and over that it is God alone who leads to growth in our lives, who can produce growth in our lives. That it's not external things that I set up and then they work their way into my life and change me at the core. Like that's just not how life works, but instead it's God working in me through his Holy Spirit that leads to changes externally. God working internally flows out and leads to external change. And so disciplines have a good and right place, but it's not like I can set up some spiritual life hacks and change who I am at the core. I can't grow at the core based on external things. And so what I know about many people in here is that you guys have a good and right desire to grow in God to know him better, to look more like Jesus, to mirror his ways. And you have this desire to grow spiritually. But a lot of times we put our hope in these spiritual disciplines as things that are going to lead to those things. And so the question that we need to be asking is, if if God's the one who alone brings growth within us, what is my role in that? How do I grow? Like, if it's not external things, what, what use do spiritual disciplines have? Do I even need to read my Bible, have my quiet times, or whatever? Do I need to do any of these things? And so that's what we're going to look at today. Because I don't want us to spend all of 2017 make, coming up with lists of ways that we're going to better ourselves and miss Jesus in the process. So what we're going to look at from the Scriptures is how to look at spiritual disciplines rightly. And for that, we're going to look at the book of Colossians. Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a church in Colossae. Uh, And and so what he's dealing with in the church, he writes them this letter to talk about this false teacher that came into their church and is teaching all kinds of uh, heresy. He's teaching that there's lists of things that they need to do and the things they need to avoid in order to be right with God. He points to religious rituals and practices as a means of reaching greater spiritual depths. depths. And so he, he basically says, hey, I've got some hacks. Here's the, here are the spiritual life hacks that you can put in place and be in greater relationship with God. And Paul writes against this and warns them in this letter. He goes out of his way to warn them. Uh, that this is not how the best way to view spiritual disciplines and shows them a better way to view them in the process. He identifies their true usefulness in helping us to grow. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. I've got three points for you in your outline in regard to spiritual growth. Point one is that Christian growth doesn't come from what you do. Christian growth does not come from what you do. And we'll see this in Colossians 2 verse 16. Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in question to food and drink, or with regard to festival or new moon or Sabbath. These are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head from whom the whole body is nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth that is from God. So how does Paul think about spiritual disciplines, right? Because he doesn't just throw them out. He doesn't say they have no value or no use. 
But at the same time, he issues a warning with them that there's a way to view them that leads to being puffed up without reason. It leads to me being puffed up and proud in myself. And so the question we need to be asking is, how did Paul write about spiritual disciplines to this church? And what does that look like for us today in 2017? How do we manage that, tempta- that tension? Because we have a temptation to do the very same thing that this false teacher was propagating. That we, we have the same temptation, I feel it myself, to create spiritual life hacks to try to ensure growth in myself. And so how do we view them rightly and not make Christianity a thing about what we do, but instead about what Christ has done? So we're going to look at how he walks this tension. What we see is that this false teacher is passing judgment on the members of the church based off things like what they eat and drink, based off their, their religious attendance, and based off of spiritual activity like visions and their interaction with the spiritual realm. And he says that these things are the qualifying factor by, by which you have interaction with God. And so Paul writes in that and he says, hey, don't let anybody disqualify you on these grounds. Like we as a church, you as a church, we as a church, are not a gathered people that do these practices in order to be accepted by God. You can't assume that to be part of the in crowd, you need to perform in a certain way. But instead, to be part of a church is to be a part of a people that uh, trust in what God has done, not in what we do, because Christian growth does not come by what we do. So we're not qualified based off of this activity, and let no one disqualify you on that basis. And he points out the uselessness of this religious system by saying that these practices lead to being puffed up without reason and lead us away from holding fast to the head of the church, that is Jesus. He states that the real goal behind these is in order to kind of puff yourself up to think that I've got my life together. And what that does is it leads to this posture that says, okay, God, you may have saved me, you may have got me into the room, but I've kind of got it from here. I can put these disciplines in place. I don't need your intervention. I can just kind of arrange my life well, live, be a good person, be a nice person, and kind of ensure that I'll be a better person at the end of this thing, at the end of my life, at the end of the year. I can ensure this growth. I don't need your intervention. I can just hack the spiritual life. I can walk into greater depths of spirituality. I can walk into greater depths with you. This is what Paul's writing against See, he, he says that these habits can have no power, these external habits have no power to change us at the core. And so I love how he talks about this in verse 17, because he compares the spiritual discipline to a shadow. So if you like think of a shadow, it's not something with substance. That's what he says here, is that uh, it's a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So the shadow has no substance in itself. You can't touch a shadow, you can't grab a shadow. It's got no substance. In, a, in fact, it's actually the, the lack of light because it's being blocked by something that has substance, that, that actually has its ground in the physical. And so he says that spiritual disciplines are like the shadow. They have no power in themselves, no substance in themselves to do anything. They're useless. But what they do is they point to a greater reality, a greater substance that is casting them. And Paul connects that greater substance to Christ. The way to think about spiritual disciplines is as a shadow. That, that the proportion to which they are useful and good for changing us on the inside 
is directly proportional to how much they point us to Jesus, to the thing that's actually of substance. Their usefulness is directly tied to how much they point us to the thing that actually has power to change us, which is Jesus, the person that has the power to change us. And so this, this difference can be kind of subtle, but like when I, when I think about my Bible reading, there are times where I read the Bible and I learn a bunch of stuff and I accumulate knowledge and I feel good about myself because I get to check off this box of, haha, I did it, right? Had my time alone, checked it off, pretty good, right? We get to just kind of relax and say, I've, I've done that. And there are times when I read my Bible and I see God work throughout history to bring everybody to this point of salvation. I see the effects that he's purchased uh, for us through that. I see all the scripture pointing to Jesus. I see him intervening in people's lives and I am in awe of who God is. I am in awe of what he's doing and what he's accomplished through Jesus. I'm reading, I'm opening up the same Bible, reading the same words, but having a very different outcome depending on whether I look at the shadow or the substance. If I'm viewing the discipline, if I'm checking the box, all it's going to lead to me is being puffed up and feeling good because I did my quiet time. I learned some knowledge. I'm smarter. I know this better. And there's a way to read the Bible that points us that we behold Jesus We're in awe of him, and the Spirit works that into our affections and our minds, and we are in awe of Jesus, and we're moved to be more like him. This goes for all spiritual disciplines. In our quiet time, we're not just trying to get away to find some peace. We're desiring to hear from God. When we enter into this room, we're not just here to check off a list. I made it it to Christmas Eve, or uh, New Year's Eve service. Like, how about that, right? But instead, we're coming to behold Jesus, to lift Jesus high. We play songs, not because they're really fun to sing musically, but because they stir our affections for Jesus in worship. Spiritual disciplines, they are useful, and that's directly proportional to the amount that they tie you back to Jesus. The goal is to behold Jesus. And so... Uh, this church 2,000 years ago was being tempted to trust in what uh, they could do in order to please God instead of looking to what Jesus has done as the basis by which they stand before him. And now this is also possible for us to make our resolutions and to think I'm just going to get my life together, right? I'm planning on just being a better parent. I'm just going to put some systems in place and be a better spouse, Right? I'm gonna, this is going to be the year where I start uh, joining a city group. This is going to be the year where I start serving. This is going to be the year where I uh, finally start giving. Like These are all really good, God-honoring things to do. Good, God-honoring disciplines to put in place. But the danger is that we put these in place and fail to realize and fail to relate to Jesus. Fail to realize that that's meant to drive us into worship of Jesus, into community with Jesus. The danger is to look at our spiritual activity and think that that is a decent substitute for Jesus himself. See, life, if we want to grow spiritually, if we want to know God better and look more like Jesus, then let's be people who don't take our eyes off of Jesus. It is through holding fast to him, the text says, that the whole body grows together with a growth that's from God. So point one, Christian growth does not come through what we do. 
Point two, Christian growth doesn't come from what we don't do. Christian growth doesn't come from what we don't do. Sorry for the double negative, but it's there. Paul moves on here to deal with a specific type of religious practice called asceticism. Okay, asceticism is a, is a harsh treatment of the body and avoidance of all things pleasurable in order to make yourself more holy before God. So whereas religious observance is basically, I'm going to do these things in order to make God pleased with me, asceticism it says, I'm going to avoid these things. I'm going to deprive myself of these things in order for God to approve of me. It's the very same thing, except it's about what you don't do. And so we're going to read about this in verse 20. If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you are still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as their use, according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So let me tell you what's happening and then connect it to us. This teacher was coming in and not only just making a list of things they had to do in order to be pleased by God, but he came in with a second list of things you weren't allowed to do, ways you had to deprive yourself in order to be pleased by God. And so, uh, once again, what this does is it takes all our attention, all our focus off of Jesus and puts it all on ourselves and our performance. Am I getting my life together enough to please God? That God must be happy with me because I'm a good enough person. And, and, And now, even without this false teacher, we're in danger of this very same thing. Like, I see this in myself, okay? I let, I wield my guilt... And, and kind of like push back away. So, uh, like, so what's true for me is there's nobody harder on me than me, right? And I know that's true for many of you as well, that there's no, you are your own worst critic. I am my own worst critic. And what I've seen is I use my guilt in order to kind of push back away from my sin. Like I, I, I'm not associated with that. Like as if I dislike my sin enough if I feel badly about myself and I kind of have a, a self-loathing ascetic practice and I feel badly enough about my sin that I'm somehow separated from it, like, don't look at me, I hate it too, right? And I use my own guilt as, an, as a way to push away from my sin, as if I'm forgiven because I feel bad about it, because I don't like that I did that. This is a uh, view of the gospel that it completely misses the point, right? Because in the end, you, you start to think, like, have I suffered enough? Like, do I feel bad enough about it? As if God's, like, looking from heaven at you and thinking, well, I see that you feel really bad, so I'm going to let it slide. Right? I see you're really beating yourself up, so I'll just let it go. It's no big deal, no big deal. Like, listen, God has never let sin go. He has not let your sin go, and he has not let my sin go. He has never just said, it's no big deal. There are, there are good, right consequences for sin, and those have been placed on Jesus. God doesn't let sin go. He paid for it. So the guilt that you feel for your sin, that is not yours to bear because that was placed on Jesus, who is called guilty in your place. 
The shame you feel is not yours to bear because Jesus took our shame for us on the cross. You're not meant to beat yourself up for your sin because Jesus was beaten in your place when he died on the cross. All guilt, all shame, and the consequences of your sin were put on Jesus. He doesn't let it go just because you feel bad about it, but instead he took that punishment. He felt bad in your place to take that from you. And if you have put your trust in him, if that's the goal and basis by which you stand before God, is that knowing Jesus has taken that, I now stand before you, then God calls you holy, spotless, and blameless. Like you, that, There's no guilt in holy, spotless, and blameless. That guilt was taken and put on Jesus. It's through him alone. So it's not our, uh, our guilt or our asceticism or our self-hate that, that separates from our sin and, and gives us forgiveness, but the fact that Jesus took that sin for us. And he goes on in the text to even say that not only is that not how God's economy works, like that's not even how the gospel works, it also has no use in stopping the indulgence of the flesh, it says. It has no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. It does not lead to more holiness. It does not lead to, like, this is the nature of religious rules, is we think that if we can set these things in place, these parameters in place, I have these things I won't do, then all of a sudden it'll, like, protect me from sinning. But what we realize is when those don't work, we've got to continually up the ante. This is the nature of religious rules. Look at how he describes it here. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Do you see like the increasing nature of those things? Like it starts with don't have it, don't don't handle it, don't have it. You know what? Don't even touch it or taste it. Don't even touch it. Don't even look at it. Don't even think about it. Don't even, like, know that it's there. Don't even know about it. Like, they, you have to keep up in the ante because we realize that they have no power to actually change us externally, inside, outside, in. The external things have no power to change us internally. And so, like, I have two kids. They love to play outside. And so when we lived out in the country before coming to City Light, I was able to just kind of open the door, let them go outside, and have free-range kids. Okay? It was awesome right? So, so they can just go and play. It was great. But when we moved to town, we now have a street framing our yard. And we've created kids that have no concept of traffic laws. So it just doesn't, it doesn't work well. And then there's like a retaining wall right on the other side of it that just begs to be climbed. And so you know they're going to head for the street right away. Like that's where they go. And so what I can do is I can put a fence up. Right? What I'm doing there is I'm guarding them from the street and defining the safe place for them to stay in. This is what God does for us. He gives us good, safe boundaries. He says, don't do these things because they lead to destruction. But what this religious leader was doing is stepping into that space and saying, you know what? I'm worried you're going to cross that fence, so what we need to do is we need to build a fence around that fence. Right? We need to up the ante. And then there, we need to like build a fence inside that fence to make sure you don't go near the fence. And then we need like a roof to make sure you don't climb over the fence. Because that's, and, and eventually, you just back yourself into a cage. Cut off from enjoying the very blessings God gave, the very space God gave for you to play and thrive in. So this asceticism, this self-denial is really just an idea because I want to control things by caging myself in. And you're just denying 
the joy you should have in the space God's defined. And so, this is the common posture. We create for ourselves a prison cell, locking us off from delighting in the gifts of God. And so what I know about many of us in this room is that we are way too hard on ourselves. We somehow think that we need to be at least a little bit miserable, and we need to, we need to just kind of deprive ourselves a little bit in order to live a Christian life. But that couldn't be farther from the way God describes the Christian life. Right? Jesus says, I come to give you life and life in the fullest. I'm going to define the places where you play, define the places where you thrive, so that you may enjoy and thrive in that. Like, we as Christians should be the most joy-filled, uh, most free, life-giving people on the planet. Right? God's given us so much in Jesus. Our call is not to deprive ourselves, but to joyfully dwell in the supremacy of Christ. To enjoy the good gifts he gave that we did not earn them. God wants us to enjoy the spaces he defines. He does not call us to asceticism. Christianity is, Christian growth does not come down to what we don't do. That does not lead to thriving. So point one, Christian growth doesn't come from what we do. Point two, Christian growth doesn't come from what we don't do. And here's the last point. Christian growth comes from relentlessly pursuing Jesus. We see this all come together in the first couple verses of chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So if our call is not to religious performance, and our call is not to depriving ourselves, what are we called to do? How do we, what are we called to do? Our call is to, fake, is to take the focus off of ourselves entirely and place it rightfully on Jesus. Like, look at, look at how this, is, this passage is all about Jesus. Like, let, let me re- reread this. If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above where Christ is, not on the things that are of the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with him in glory. It's all about looking to Jesus here. We're called to do this in two specific ways in this passage, right? So the first one, it says to seek the things that are above where Christ is. We're called to seek. Seek carries with this idea of this idea of striving and pursuing and setting our affections and our heart towards something. Like it's the thing we desire. We seek after it. We're called to seek after Jesus. And then it goes in the next ver- verse and says, set your minds on, on the things that are above. Like literally it just says, mind the things above. And we set our focus and our thoughts, we take them captive, and we dwell on Jesus. So it's not simply through emotional excitement, nor through intellectual assent that we're called to pursue Jesus, but with the whole of our beings. With our full heart and full mind, we're meant to place those on Jesus. And then what happens in that space is, the Holy Spirit begins to stir inside us and mirror our affections and our minds to Jesus. 
as we behold Jesus, we begin to love the things he loves, and we begin to see the world the way he sees it and desire the things he desires. Our affections begin to mirror Jesus' affections. We begin to see his truth. We begin to see the world the way he defines it, and our minds begin to mirror Jesus' mind. That as we look on Jesus, not our external barriers we put in place, but just look on Jesus, we begin to mirror him, and the Holy Spirit works inside us and turns those into a Christ-like core inside us that then works its way out. It's through beholding Jesus. It's, behold, it's through looking to the substance that we are changed. And so where do spiritual gifts fit in? They are the shadow that points to that substance. They're good and right as long as they are pointing to Jesus. So like any power our resolutions have, our spiritual disciplines have, to affect the core of our being is from their ability to point us to Jesus. And so when I look at my resolutions, I don't want to just check off the Bible in the year box. But I want to see Jesus in the scripture. I don't want to just get away for a quiet time, but I want to hear from God. I don't want to just be a better father and husband. Because that's not going to happen unless I pursue Jesus, keep my eyes on him, and bring my family into that pursuit with me. That I'm pointing their eyes to Jesus. That the people around me, that I want to point their eyes to Jesus. These spiritual disciplines I put in place are all to the effect of pursuing Jesus and mirroring him. It's not out of a desire to please God, but out of a desire or out of a confidence, rather, that we have in what he's already accomplished. That the same Holy Spirit that opened our eyes to see his truth, the same Holy Spirit that's brought us in this room, is the Holy Spirit that's working inside us in order to change us from the inside out. And the promise is that he who started a good work in you will finish it, will bring it to completion. So we, we have this confidence. I mean, look at the confidence in this passage. These last couple of verses... This for is an assumed positive. It's like a because. Because you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's hidden. It's protected. It's secure. Your life is hidden. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, not if, but when, then you will also appear with him in glory. We have a confidence that God's going to finish this work to the end. We don't look to our external disciplines, but we look to Christ as the author and perfecter of our faith. We look to him as the one that's going to change us on the inside. So how do we view these rightly? How do we look, I mean, how do we make good resolutions in 2017? We want to look, our, our, our real goal in 2017, our real goal of every year is to know Jesus better to be led in on his mind, to sync up with his will, to be sync up with his desires. And so, I mean, so this church is going to do some really cool things in 2017. I'm so glad that I got to be a part of this church. I mean, we're, we're planning a church next year. We're going to be doing, having more city groups. We're going to be having more people come in the room, hear the gospel, and get saved. We're going to be possibly doing a West Omaha. We're going to be working towards a West Omaha gathering where more people can come in the room and hear the gospel. There's going to be some cool things happening. 
But the thing I love most about this church is its simple and sincere love for Jesus. When we get up on this stage, any, any pastor that gets up on the stage, any week you're here listening to preaching, the subject has always been Jesus. Because it, honestly, it's only through beholding him that we have any power that the Holy Spirit can work inside us in order to make us more like him. So the supremacy of Jesus is, is just one of my favorite parts about this church, and it's so good. And I, I want us to be marked in 2017 as a church who keeps our full mind and our full hearts focused on Jesus. I'm going to close in prayer. Lord, I thank you for a new year. You have defined the parameters in which we live and the years of our life that you have got us into this room into Omaha in 2017 intentionally. And you say that your desire is that people may come to find you. And so, Lord, I ask that this year that we set our gaze, set our focus, set our mind and our hearts on pursuing you, that that becomes the major cry of our hearts, that we don't look to external resolutions in order to change us, but instead follow the shadows back to the substance that we see you and want to be more like you. Let that be the cry of our hearts as a people and as individuals. And it's in your beautiful name we pray, Lord. Amen.